Well, who in here has done a either personal study or a whole group study of the book of James before? Yeah, so you might be very familiar with it, and it's just familiar to me as well. Um, but James has just been a, a huge joy in the last several weeks of going through with uh, the college students, uh, mostly because my, uh, my understanding of the languages and understanding of just overall how to better prepare for Sunday morning teaching session is just developed so quickly. I, I'm in TES seminary, and so that's just been a huge joy to get to understand the languages more, but, but even just understanding how to better prepare. Uh, and I would say that the best preparation you can ever do for teaching is uh, getting to know and love your sheep. Uh, that has got to be the first place you have to start. And so James has been a rich study, uh, obviously because of the content, because we're talking about the Word of God, but but also just because it is such great practical wisdom. And for our young people today, I mean, the, the truth that we've been able to learn from, uh, the book of James has just been so rich. But as I've been going through the book of James, one of the things that has been just so obvious throughout this entire book is this kind of underlining theme, motif, um, just this single thread that has been woven in all throughout the book of James. You may have thought that the book of James was just kind of an axiom of truth, one uh, section after the other, just kind of rapid fire. But really what all these sections have in common is uh, highlighting the need for integrity in the Christian life, the need for integrity in the Christian life. Uh, And you could say the opposite of that is we have to outright reject hypocrisy. We have to outright reject hypocrisy because Uh, All the way from the very beginning of James, all the way to where we just uh, ended a couple weeks ago in the college group in chapter 3, what he's been addressing is a group of people that are wanting to live a certain way. They're wanting to have some sort of uh, appearance on the outside while having no internal change on the inside. There is no internal change uh, because the reality is, is they're just essentially playing a game. How can I work a system so that I can get the most out of my situation? I can get the most out of the church I'm involved in, the people that are around me, the the overall Christian influence that I'm trying to get other people to perceive in me without actually having the heart change and the sanctification that's behind it. This has been the issue. In fact, we get all these little pockets that are are showing this, but uh, James 2 is kind of uh, one of the big passages there where you have a group of people that are saying, I have faith and you have works. And James is outright rejecting that and saying, well, the only way you can have faith is you have to show it by your works. For you to simply just profess that you have a faith and that your deep knowledge and love, oh, I know God so well. I mean, I can tell you all the attributes of God. I can tell you all the theology you want. I can let you know all the doctrine. James rejects that and says even the demons know that. And they even go a step further and they shudder. And you sit there in your hypocrisy living in a life that is absolutely just, a, a, just an, an offense to God. And so here we turn to James 3, where he is addressing an issue that, uh, again, may seem like just an isolated text. But if we keep in mind the theme and the context of hypocrisy and integrity... What we're going to see here is that one of the greatest ways that we can show hypocrisy 
in our life, and, and even specifically in our families, as parents, as husbands and wives, uh, is, is through our words. Our words is one of the easiest ways for us to demonstrate a hypocrisy, uh, either by two ways. One is that we are believers, and the way we're using our words is not uh, showing what, what is within us, and that is the spirit that should be abiding and should be controlling as we're living a spirit-filled life. But then there's the other side of it, and that's people who have no spirit. There is no intention to submit to the word. There is no intention to abide by the word. And yet they have learned how to talk the talk. They've learned how to say the right words. And so what you see is you just see this duplicity all throughout this section. And uh, really what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at verses 3 through 12, Um, When I taught this to the college students, I did this in a part one, part two, and uh, what I called it is I called it the, um, I called it the weight of our words. If you don't know too, I'm like a really big PowerPoints guy. I I like, I like reveal one point at a time just to build the suspense. So, um, so if I'm in the way, sorry, I'm trying to, you know, doing something new here, but yeah, I, uh, particularly with young people, you got to have them looking at something. And looking at me is usually not helpful. So allowing them to look at the screen is, is much better. So, uh, what, so verses 1 and 2 I kind of did as a part 1. Uh, if you think, like, how did he teach for an hour on two verses? Oh, I can teach a lot more on one verse. Um, there's, there's a lot of truth to kind of unpack. And this is really how I rounded out part one. And then today we're going to look at essentially the part two of this message, which is, is a great message on its own. But what I looked at is uh, three reasons we must consider. Now, remember, this is not today's message. So don't get all gung-ho and like, oh, no, that's not what I meant to write. Uh, so what we looked at as a part one that leads into what we're going to talk about today is three reasons we must consider the weight of teaching. And that is, number one, we stubble in many ways. Number two, we struggle with our words. And number three, we are subject to judgment. And so if you remember the context of who he's speaking to, he's speaking to a group of people that have been scattered across Asia Minor. They were a part of the Jerusalem church, as you know, uh, or maybe, maybe this is the first time you've heard this. But James is the, the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the shepherd and pastor in Jerusalem. And after persecution, we're not exactly sure which persecution most would say the stoning of Stephen, but there's other cases where it could be something different. Uh, the, the church is then scattered. And so what you have here is you have a pastor that has a shepherd's heart that is writing to his people. And the one thing that he's just straining to teach them through his writing, through this letter, is do not be, hypo- uh, do not be filled with hypocrisy while you are living out in the world. And is that not true for today in the world that we're living in? The world where sometimes it feels like we're scattered all over the place and it seems like we're living in such a uh, fallen world that's falling apart and crumbling around us. And so his his teaching here is that you should not be duplicitous. And what he tells them in verse 1, actually let's read verse 1 and 2 together real quickly and then we'll look at our text uh, for, for today. He says, do not many of you, I use Legacy Standard Bible, Some, you'll, you'll graduate there, don't worry, you'll, you'll get there. Um, do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the entire body as well. And then verse 3. 
Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot will. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And sets on fire the course of our existence, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tame and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. We have been made in the likeness of God, who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a fountain pour forth from it the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Let me pray for us and then we're going to look at this text. Father, as we uh, open your word and look at what you inspired James to write down for a people 2,000 years ago, what we understand is that this truth is so needed for us today that we need to strive for purity in our words. But this starts first and foremost with purity in our own hearts that only can be caused by the change that you cause in us as you call us to be your people. So Lord, allow us to open our eyes, but not just to the truth, but also open our eyes to the hypocrisy in our own hearts Let us just run as far away from hypocrisy. Let us uh, ask for forgiveness for those who we have not lived a life that is upright. But instead, Lord, let us uh, put on Christ in the way we use our words so that we can not only be ambassadors for you, but so that we can give glory back to you, which is where all the glory belongs. So, Lord, as we uh, look at this text, Lord, help us with clarity and help us with, with sincerity so that we live this out with courage and diligence as we walk through this fallen world. In your holy and precious name, amen. So today, what we're going to look at is three descriptions of our words that carry spiritual weight. Three descriptions of our words that carry spiritual weight. Now, you may be thinking to yourself that, um, you know, let's go back to verse 1 and verse 2. We all stumble many ways. Anyone that is perfect with their tongue, that person is a perfect man. And uh, James's point there is that it's very hard to be very self-controlled with our words. This is something that uh, is seen all throughout our lives, but how much more so in the family life? You get comfortable. You're sitting there and you're willing to say things to a family member because uh, maybe it's the fact that they're stuck with you. So it's like it's not like they can just leave me. They're right here with me. They're going to stick with me to the end. Uh, maybe it's the fact that you don't feel like you have anything left to gain. Where in a workplace, you are sitting there striving for a sense of uh, maybe a promotion or maybe you're sitting there and you're wanting to gain the approval of the people around you. 
But how often is it that we're willing to give our leftovers to our own families with our words? And so again, you may be thinking, do, do words really carry a spiritual weight? Well, if we just look back briefly at chapter 1 of James, James has already kind of touched on uh, just, just a glimpse of the tongue. In fact, uh, some commentators say that the very end of James chapter 1 is almost like an outline of what he's about to launch into for the rest of the letter. Uh, I, I can't quite go there based on what I'm saying. I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but we can at least acknowledge that he does mention uh, our words in a few places. Uh, first, we see that uh, in verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And then if you go down a little bit further after talking about the importance of being doers of the word and not being hypocrites and just being hearers, we can see that he says in uh, verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious while not bridling or controlling his tongue, but deceiving his own heart, this Man's religious is worthless. And so I say again, that the spiritual weight that our words carry is significant. For God to say through the writer of James that if you are not able to control your tongue, or better yet, you can control it for some people, but all of a sudden you can't control it for other people because you're living a life of hypocrisy— James says that your religion is worthless. You show up early to Sunday school. You find your chair and you get all settled and you're excited. You sing all the words. In fact, you don't even have to look at the screen because you just know the words so well. And yet, what's in your heart is a heart that doesn't even see your own hypocrisy. He says it there in in verse 26. He says, uh, you can't bridle your tongue, but he does say that you're deceiving your own heart. Self-deception. You think that you're doing so well because of the knowledge you're gaining. You think because of your reputation. You think because of some prominence you have in whatever sphere of life you are living in, you think that you're doing well. And yet you're living in duplicity with your own words, and God says your religion is worthless. Zero value. And so James here back in chapter 3 tells us that if you're going to continue, again, his, his audience, I think, in chapter 3 is talking to everybody. He's just saying, in general, not many of you should become teachers because uh, we all stumble many ways, but especially with our words. And if you may not know, I, I taught for 10 years. I taught five years in public school and then five years in Christian school. And uh, yeah, when you're a teacher by trade, uh, your words are pretty much what you get paid for. Uh, No one was paying me for my amazing athletic ability. I mean, I could have shown off a little bit at my five foot eight stature, um, but uh, but I wasn't getting paid for athletic ability. My my father in law uh, is a truck driver, uh, Allison's dad, and he's big burly truck driver, tattoos, hardworking guy, fixes cars, and then uh, there's me, who has as he would say, soft city boy hands. Uh, Yeah. He, lo- he loves me a lot. He'll never tell me that, but I think he loves me. I think he does. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, if, if I were to ever, you know, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and I'm just like, man, it's been a rough year. He says, oh, tell me. Tell me how, was the air conditioning not to your liking? 
was a... You know, was, was it difficult just talking for a living and getting paid for it? And I was like, all right, I'll never, never again will I say anything. But the reality is there that uh, for, for teachers, people teaching, and obviously he's talking about teachers of the word, not necessarily a teacher by profession in the sense of education. But there's a significance that, like, your job is about what you say. And by being casual, or, or even by being so precise with how you say things in such a good way, and yet your life doesn't reflect what you're saying, not many of us should become teachers. It is, that is a weighty, weighty passage. And so after saying this, you can imagine that the, the shift here to a description is almost like James saying, what, you don't think I'm serious? You don't think that our words actually carry that much weight? Let me help you understand the weight of our words with three descriptions. We're going to look at, it's got an underestimated power, a unrelenting destruction, and an undeniable hypocrisy. You didn't know you were getting two sermons today, did you? Yeah. All right, so let's look at the first one, an underestimated power. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Uh, Remember, he just got done talking about that not many of us should become teachers. And so James is now going to launch into a few illustrations to help kind of bring home his point. And so here he talks about uh, bits and horses And even the writer is kind of alluded to talking about directing the entire body in a certain direction. Um, I'm not uh, being a guy with city boy hands. I'm not very familiar with horses. Um, So I had to do a little bit of research uh, to understand that, number one, horses are like 2,000 pounds, which that makes sense. But that was, again, just like, oh, that's like a a ton. No, that's a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and, And then understanding how bits work. So if... Anyone in here is like a personal hobby of like, I just love horses. Uh, forgive me for what I'm about to say, because this is a very basic understanding. But uh, so there's these bits. I'm going to act like I don't know what I'm talking about, though. Okay, so for the recording. Uh, so there's these metal pieces that they put into their mouth. And these metal pieces they're putting in there, and they usually go uh, just on top of the tongue. And as long as the horse keeps its head perfectly straight... You know, uh, and of course, if it's being led to the right, obviously it's going to move its head to the right. But if it rears back or if it puts its head down because it's trying to buck the rider off or it's trying to turn to the left or right, this, this metal piece will actually dig into their mouth and actually cause pain. And so this tiny piece of metal can direct this massive 2,000-pound horse. And, and his point here, I, I think, is, is so obvious and so needed. But I want you to understand something about what this illustration represents. We have three items in this illustration. We have the horse, we have the metal bit, and then we have the rider. And what he's showing here is this fact that if there's a directionality of the horse. In fact, that's his point there, is that we direct the entire body with this little bit. So he gets this idea of a direction. This little bit has this power to direct the horse exactly where it wants. But you could understand the horse is kind of your fallenness and your flesh. And you could understand the rider as, 
really our, our will and intention to do what we want, and sometimes what we want in our flesh are coinciding with one another, but there are other times where our fallenness in our flesh are in opposition to what we desire. And that's what Paul talks about when he says, I, I keep doing the things that I don't want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. He's talking about this battle between our flesh and our will. And what James is saying here is that our words can help direct exactly which direction we're showing to others. Uh, and really, the, the bit is what's connecting two opposite wills. These bits are connecting two opposite wills. And again, just to give you a perception of this, uh, there's been many times I've gotten to know college students, and some of them are just brand new coming to the college group from KSU. And, uh, you know, I meet them and we have good interaction. And, you know, they don't come to church here on Sunday, but we're so glad that they're coming on a Thursday night. And what's interesting is they're choosing to come to a Thursday night, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, And uh, we just have conversation. But the more we end up talking and the more they start speaking about things, you kind of start getting an understanding of exactly what they value, it doesn't take much. And it's so interesting because I, I don't know them. I've never seen them. It's not like I was following them around their entire life. But just simple conversation back and forth, you can quickly figure out someone's priorities of what's important to them. And, and just like that, just by words, you get an understanding of whoever's right in front of you. It, it, could, it, could it be wrong? Absolutely. We've already talked about deception. But our words have a significance of showing the direction of our life. We have this horse versus rider picture here for us. Our words have the power to direct our lives. You may think that, yeah, our actions do too. And I think James is pretty clear about our actions in chapter 2. But here he wants to speak about words. And what we can realize is that the excuse that we've said, where we've said that thing that we should not have said, we've made that comment that we should not have made, and uh, very quickly our response to that sin, that guilty conscience that rears up, will reveal a little bit about this dynamic between the horse and the rider. Uh, For instance, if you're sitting there and you're just, you know, look, you know I've had a hard day, okay? It's, it's, It's just, it's been a, it's been a rough week, you know that. There you go. You're you're sitting there and you're acknowledging that this horse is your flesh is so strong and that there's really nothing you can do about it. But it's always going to be a battle to think that you can just master and get this horse to stay exactly where you want, that your flesh is just going to be able to stay in the way that you want it to stay. You go to like one counseling conference or you go to a, you know, a super seminar and boom, you're like, I'm never going to struggle with my words again. That was so good. No, the next day you're going to wake up and that horse is going to be charging in the direction you don't want it to go. It's a never-ending battle. But remember, too, that it's not necessarily your words that have the power over the direction. Remember, it's the rider. The power is based on the rider. And let me tell you, your own intentions, your own desires, the things that are in your own mind... If you do not know uh, Christ, if you are not in Christ, you may be able to pretend for a while, but what eventually is going to happen is you're going to want to go the same way as the horse because you are living in a fleshly mind. You are living in your own fallenness. Now, remember, there's, there's, um, 
there's multiple sides to this. Obviously, it's, you know, be careful not to say bad things. But there's also this opposite side of you need to be making sure that at the right time you're saying the right things. Remember, this is not just about, okay, the horse wants to go this way. Success is stopping the horse. Whew. Good, we're not headed towards Atlanta. I don't know. It, it's not, it's, the whole point is not the idea of like stopping your flesh, stopping your flesh. I mean, if, if you're just sitting in a field and you're just trying to sit there and the horse wants to go that way, ah, nope, I'm going to be a good Christian. We're staying right here. But the language here is the idea that you're directing it somewhere else. And is, is this not repentance? When we have to repent from using words that are unwholesome, not only do we have to stop our own flesh from going the way that it wants to go, I want to say this to this person. I want to let my boss really know how I feel. I want to make sure that all these tracks of wrongs in my mind against my wife, I, you know, I really, when she holds this against me, I just, I've got this, I got it ready. Just one opportunity, I'm going to say it. How, how often is it that we are sitting here in this never-ending battle? Don't say that, don't say that, don't say that. And the point here is, Stop, turn, and start going in the opposite direction. Instead of cursing, there should be blessing. Instead of looking for opportunities to lift up yourself, yeah, that's awesome that you're battling your pride and your flesh and you're sitting there and and saying, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to say that. But instead, why don't you praise them? Instead, why don't you lift up your brothers and sisters in Christ? So this is a never-ending battle with our flesh that we're going to have. But, it, but it's not just this internal battle that we're having. There's also kind of a battle from the outside. Look what he says in verse 4. He moves on to a second analogy, which is actually hammering home the exact same point, but there's a slight nuance to what he's saying here. In verse 4 it says, Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds... They are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the, uh, the pilot wills. So you can see that you've got a lot of similar elements here. You have a massive vehicle of movement, a horse and a ship. Uh, you've got a pilot and a rider. You have the tiny bit that changes direction of the horse, and you also have this rudder that can change the direction of the whole ship. But if you notice here, James kind of adds in a fourth element here, and he talks about these great driving strong winds. I I can't say for certain that this was James' intention, but I think it is important to note that sometimes we're not battling our flesh when it comes to how we use our words. Sometimes we're battling our environment. I mean, everyone knows the two easiest things to, to have a conversation about when it comes to small talk is you can complain about something or talk about the weather. Sometimes you complain about the weather and it's a, it's a twofer there. But is it not true that not only are we battling our flesh and what's on the inside, but there's also just the world we're living in. But it's not an excuse. It's not like you can sit there and say, you know, I've, you know Pastor, I've been trying to turn this ship the right direction. But man, those, those winds are strong. It's hard. It's like, yeah, so that means you need to apply all the more diligence. You can't use excuses. These winds are just talking about the environment that we're living in. The hardship that is there. And it is, it, it is tough. It, it's difficult. But again, this is not something that we can use as an excuse. Really, when we think about the family, you know, particularly sometimes it happens when we're around ext- extended family, Thanksgivings, Christmases, uh, times where you're just around people. 
uh, again, it, it can be difficult. The, the gossip, the, the joking, the, the coarseness that's there. And it's so difficult because you're just sitting there and you're feeling the full weight of that wind just blowing against you. But if you have the spirit of God, if you have that abiding spirit that's within you, yeah, there's strong winds. Yeah, this boat is massive. But what has God called us to do? To live a life that's upright. So we have to be careful with our words. You may think that they're insignificant. You may think that they're small, but they carry a great weight. And in fact, um, he kind of hammers home his point here after the two illustrations and says this in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. It boasts great things. The, the Greek word here for uh, the word boast, it's actually a neutral term. When we hear the word boast, we always lean towards the negative side, being arrogant, boasting, showboating. But this word here is not this idea of, uh, it, it could be negative, but it depends on if we're talking, what we're talking about here. And since he's sitting here saying, even though it's so small and there's different directions we can go, and yet it boasts great things, we have to take it as a neutral term. And in fact, I think a better understanding to get your mind to understand this picture of what he's talking about here is if you change the word boast to advertises. The tongue is small. Your words are small, and yet it advertises great things. What you choose to say and what you choose not to say advertises exactly who you are. It advertises what's important to you. It advertises what's not important to you. It shows your priorities. Your words, even though it's just the vibration of your vocal cords, as you move your mouth and your tongue in certain ways and form together sounds, to form together words, to form together sentences, different tones, different scrunchings of the eyebrows and different other facial features that send a message that we're wanting to send. Our words, even though they are small, advertise great things. And let, me, let me do a little side thing. This was definitely prevalent for the young people, but... Uh, just because you may not be using your lips or your mouth or your tongue, uh, your thumbs are pretty dangerous too, right? <laughs> just saying. We're talking about what you're communicating. And that could be in all sorts of ways. It's not just the fact that it's like, well, pastor, you can't really hold that against me. I didn't even use my tongue the entire time. I typed it all down. Like, no, you're just as guilty. Even though it's small, It boasts great things. It advertises great things. Your words advertise your true priorities. So let me ask you just a couple questions just to think through this. How often do you talk about yourself? If you were to write down a catalog of all your conversations on a Sunday morning, what would it be? If, if you were to take all your conversations and write it down, or, or even get a little bit more specific, all the ones that you initiate and all the conversations that you initiate, and you were to put it down and, and put it almost into a visual pie chart, what would that pie chart show? What do you value? Because, again, if we take that catalog and we take it over a day, over a week, over a month, maybe your entire time here at FCC, just so you know, Your conversations and what you choose to talk about advertises what's important to you. 
you may think that they're insignificant, but they carry tremendous weight. Tremendous weight. I mean, and, and we know the, the, the Lord's coming back at any time, and we should be so careful with how we use our words. And don't get me wrong, I, I love the leisure time. I love the, the small talk. If you mention New Orleans Saints football to me, I'll talk to you forever. No one else does. Maybe Russell. I know Russell's a big fan, but, but like, that's, that's about it. Uh, I mean, but it's just, again, it's just like, there's nothing wrong with those things, but look at the percentage of your conversations because your words advertise your priorities. I mean, you may say, yeah, but don't actions speak louder than words? Yeah, I would agree. Actions do speak louder than words. But you know what speaks louder? When your actions and words don't match up. Speaks so loud. Your words have an underestimated power. But not only does he describe it as an underestimated power, but he also refers to it as an unrelenting destruction. An unrelenting destruction. He says in verse 5, Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of righteousness. Now, again, some people may put that along with the first point, like, well, he's talking about a great fire and a small spark. I would agree, but I think there's a transition here. The first two were talking about a direction, a horse changing direction, a boat changing direction, and he's shifting here to say this small thing the tongue, the, our words, or in this case, a spark, can also have great consequences. So I want you to understand its power, but when you use it wrongly, that tiny thing can make some huge, huge damage, huge destruction. Your words are a spark, and they are the very world of unrighteousness. This world of unrighteousness can understand it as uh, a system of sin, Uh, talking about the ruler of this world and his system of ideas behind it. And again, how often that we join in with our words and how we use our words, that it goes along with his plans. In fact, he's going to get here shortly in chapter 3 towards the end when it talks about wisdom and that when you live by a wisdom of this world, if you live in, in concordance with this wisdom that is full of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, that that wisdom is earthly, it's natural, and he even says demonic. When we're living according to that world, and what I told the students is, that, again, they may be thinking that just because they're thinking that way or talking that way or living this way, like how on earth is it demonic? I get how it's, it's uh, you know, natural. I get how it's you know, obviously not being upright, but you can't say it's demonic. I mean, that's, that's kind of overboard, and I would say absolutely not. I would say demons and Satan's plan, enemy number one, Plan number one is deception. And if you can convince everyone around you that you're an upright person while living a secret life of shame on the inside, mission accomplished. Your words are the very world of unrighteousness when you're living a duplicitous life. When you're living in hypocrisy, you are joining in with Satan's schemes to deceive the people in the church. This tiny little spark, again, it, you, may, you, may, uh, you may be sitting here thinking like, you know, I, I get times where I just say things and I'm just, I'm just being intentional and I, I know exactly what I'm doing. But I mean, there's, there's obviously times I'm not really intentionally doing things. I'm not intentionally saying things. Uh, sometimes it just kind of comes out and, I, you know, I, I apologize. But Satan doesn't care what your intentions are as long as you do the wrong thing. 
back in 2020, uh, this is a story that's from 2020 that's not COVID. Uh, back in 2020, uh, there is the El Dorado wildfire in California, lasted for 23 days and burned 23,000 acres. Three homes, uh, I'm surprised only three homes, three homes, 15 other buildings, and even a firefighter lost his life. Um, and uh, the people responsible were charged with 30, uh, 30 uh, crimes involving, uh, including involuntary manslaughter. Um, anyone familiar with this story, by the way? Anyone remember what the reason was? It was the gender reveal. It's the gender reveal. It super, super dry, dry, dry climate. And they went through with it anyway to do the, I think that's the smoke one where something, whatever... It's a gender reveal that set 23,000 acre, 23, acres on fire. I mean, like, do, do we think our words have less weight if our intentions were good? Absolutely not. Our words carry weight whether you intended it or not. The damage is done. Be careful with your words even if, uh, even if they're unintentional, it's, it's kind of pointless because there's an irreversible damage that can happen. He goes on and says, The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence. It is set on fire by hell. Okay, this is strong, strong language. Um, this, this word defiling here. Uh, in fact, there's connections here because defiles is this idea of polluting. And so some, some commentators would say that uh, James is kind of playing on the illusion of like not only is there the fire, that means that you say this thing and there's this ripple effect of like what happens because you said that. But, but there's even indirect consequences that happen, almost like the, the smoke that just destroys an entire area, even though the fire may not have touched them at all. So it defiles the entire body, even though the flame maybe uh, didn't even get there. Um, we, we understand that, I mean, even the world understands this because uh, I, I don't know if you guys remember the whole popular uh, story that happened a couple years ago, maybe it was a year ago with Johnny Depp and the lawsuit that was happening because um, of defamation of just saying the wrong words. Uh, but he was awarded you know, $15 million just for someone spreading false things about him. So even the world has an understanding of you got to be careful with what you say in this world and holding people accountable. But then he goes on and says that it sets on fire the course of our existence. It sets on fire the course of our existence. In fact, that word course, uh, and this is weird. When I first was like studying, I was like, what on earth is, is James trying to point out here? But this word course uh, is actually, um, uh, sorry, uh, it, it's this idea of a wheel, and I put a fortune because that's kind of the, the image it has here. It's uh, it, actually what it says in the Greek is it sets on fire the wheel of our existence, um, the wheel of our existence. And so really what it's talking about is, you know, as we are living in this life, it's almost like spinning a wheel. It's almost like this wheel of things are changing all the time. I mean, there's the ups and downs of life. It's, it's actually kind of uh, similar to... Um, you know, life is like a box of chocolates. We're just all over the place. And so, I mean, really, that's, that's the image here. That's kind of the idea behind this is your words. I mean, we already experienced the ups and downs of life. But even in the midst of the ups and downs of life, just saying the wrong thing can set that whole course of life on fire and defile the whole thing. All the unfortunates that are there. 
And then the tongue, he also says, is set on fire by hell. Uh, this is the, the well-known Valley of Hinnom that's there. This is uh, around the south gate of Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, they would refer to the south gate of Jerusalem as the dung gate because of the smell that would come from it. Uh, there's the, the trash pit that was on fire. This is the same term that Jesus used when he referred to hell. It gave picture, a, a great picture to the audience about exactly what he was talking about because they would harass you not only with visuals, not only with maybe sounds of, of what was going on there, but also just the smell that would go there. And so it gives this very graphic image of exactly what we're talking about. It's hard to know exactly what we're talking about as far as the meaning here. But I think a good way to understand is what I just said a second ago, that you may think your words are small, you may think they're insignificant, but they have a relentless destruction. They go perfectly along with Satan's purposes. When you're flippant with your words, even the times where you choose to stay silent and not speak up and say the right thing, you are... They're a part of Satan's plans and purposes, it's including deception. Its destruction is obvious, but James reveals another issue about this destructive nature. He also mentions that uh, it's destructive like a forest fire and it's impossible to control. Very similar to a forest fire as well. Even unpredictable, wild animals can be tamed or controlled by man, but do our speech... Uh, does our speech. He says in verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tame and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. I think the, the understanding here is, is pretty obvious. Don't, don't underestimate the tongue. Don't underestimate our words. It takes, I mean, it's hard work. It's hard work to practice these things. And the first step of practicing this is repentance. The first step is we need to make sure that in those moments where we say the wrong thing, right there in that moment that we are broken and we repent. And like Paul tells King Agrippa in Acts 26, we need to turn away from our sin, turn towards God, and then practice deeds that are appropriate with repentance. That means you're repenting and you're saying, I've got to control my words. I have to get this under control. And so then you start practicing things and getting accountability around you, hopefully from your husband or wife in this this, uh, setting of focus on the family. And they hold you accountable to practice deeds that are appropriate to repentance. I'm not saying it's easy. No one likes to have, you know, that moment where you just fall on your face and then accountability comes. But that's the point of accountability is that you don't want it. But it helps you to practice these things more faithfully. He says that no one can tame the tongue. It's not to say that that it's just like we should give up. I mean, it's the same idea of like we should strive towards holiness. Are we ever going to be perfectly holy? No, but we don't ever lower the standard. We keep on moving forward knowing that we may not ever get to perfection until the day we die. And then he says it's a restless evil. He says it's a restless evil. This word, uh, actually, I want to show you this word in another place. It's translated in multiple ways, but look back at chapter one. Let me show you this word restless to give you an idea of what I mean by restless. Look at, 
Let's see. Let's, let's look at verse 5 of chapter 1. This is after he just got done explaining that trials are great for us to develop perseverance and for us to be perfect, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the man ought to not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable, that's that word, unstable in all his ways. Same word there. And his, his point's obvious. His point here is, is about the same. If you're going to try to live a life of duplicity, you're going to complain about trials, you're going to gripe and, and moan that trials are just so hard and, and that, you know, why am I experiencing hardship? And you don't look at it as an opportunity to grow in your walk with the Lord. Well, number one, you can ask the Lord for wisdom and help to do this. But the person who doubts, and again, doubting is not the idea that it's like, I want to believe, but I'm just having such a hard time. Doubting is the fact that your mind is split. You're not asking God because you love this world. Chapter 4, he's going to address the same issue. The, The reason why there's doubting, the reason why there's instability, the reason why there's restlessness in your tongue is because there's duplicity. There's hypocrisy. And, and, and maybe it's not, you know, this direct intention that I just want to deceive everyone around us, but you just think that you can, there's something to gain by using the words that you think are best. The Lord tells us over and over again how to use our words in the Proverbs, and time and time again when we fall into this sin, we just simply look at, at what the world offers and as far as how you get what you want, and we're like, no, I'll stick with that. That way is best for me. And I, to be honest, I, in the workplace, you got to be rough. You got to be harsh. You got to let your tongue loose every once in a while just to say, get exactly what you want. You know? Well, if, if I'm apologetic and I'm kind, people are going to run all over me. If, if I'm gentle in spirit, I mean, you know how many times I'm going to get taken advantage of? And all of a sudden, you're rationalizing in your mind ways that you can use your tongue for destruction. Because you've convinced yourself that there's something to gain in this world. James says friendship with this world, you're, you're, at, you're, you're, you're making God to be your enemy. He calls them adulterers, double-minded. The people that he's talking to have exhibited this time and time again. So, again, what he's saying here is, look, your tongue, not only is it full of deadly poison, which might have this image of uh, Psalm 140 where he talks about the, the, the snake and the, the sharpens their tongue as a serpent, this person that's not careful with their words, and poison is an asp in, uh, that's under their lips. But what he's saying here is that, look, if you're going to live a life of duplicity, if you're going to try to be a part of the church and experience the benefits of the church, but then also get what you want according to your fleshly desires, well, yeah, no duh that your life is full of instability that your tongue is this restless instability because you're trying to play on two separate teams to keep up in your mind talking this way with this person. But then I go to this place and I talk with this person, but when I'm my family, I'm over here, I'm talking this, but I'm with my old guys from high school. I talk this way, but when I'm online, I talk like this. When I'm on Facebook marketplace, I say, you know, I mean, it's just like, if we're not willing to live a life of integrity with our words, it makes sense that you're stumbling all over the place, that your tongue is restless 
Because you're trying to live with allegiances in multiple places instead of a single allegiance to God. But what if I get taken advantage of? Christ was taken advantage of. He was the perfect example of laying down his life, trusting the Lord. Was it hard? Absolutely. He said, Lord, please take this cup from me. But I will strive to do your will. Your will be done. Our words can be unrelenting in destruction, as well as its slow, eroding after effects. Really, that's the best understanding of him talking about full of deadly poison. Yeah, sometimes it's an explosive fire. Sometimes it's dramatic because of what you say. But how many times is it that it's just adding a little bit of poison over time, wearing the other person down? And next thing you know, they're bitter, they're angry, they're struggling in their own heart against you. And like, what did I say? but little drops of poison over time can cause massive, unrelenting destruction. It has this power, it has this destruction, and then thirdly, where he lands here at the very end of our section is it has an undeniable hypocrisy. An undeniable hypocrisy. And actually what we see is he shifts away from uh, from. from the illustration, and he actually goes to a real example. We don't know if he's speaking of an actual example that he can think of. We don't know if these were things that were happening within the Jerusalem church. And so when they all scattered, he just assumed these things were happening. But either way, he's speaking to it very specifically. And so we can assume here that this is the crux of his issue when he's talking about using our words. He says in James 3, 9, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. These things ought not to be. What does that mean? I mean, sometimes we're praising God with our words. We come to church, we sing the songs, we do the prayers, we, we do the, ch- the small chat, we, we do the prayer requests. We do, we do this thing, but what's the heart behind it? Is it true worship or is it just going through the motions? And we can see the hypocrisy that's undeniable by our relationship with other people. He's saying these things ought not to be. You're going to claim to be of God and, and say these things and have all the theology in the world, and yet you're not actually going to, to love others the way you need to? And you're like, well, I, I'm, I am good at loving others, just not everybody. Well, this was the same issue with the, the, the uh, recipients of this letter back in chapter 2. Remember what was happening in the beginning of chapter 2? They were showing favoritism to the rich. Here, come sit here at the front. Come sit right here. And then the poor people would come in. They're like, you can, you can stand up in the back or you can sit by my footstool. And you not even sit on my footstool. Sit by my footstool. It wasn't the fact that they were just unloving. They were just loving to the people they wanted to be loving to. I mean, this is part of that hypocrisy. People describe you as loving. It's like, yeah, but which people would describe you as loving? The people that are in your group, the people that you talk to, would everyone describe you as loving? And and not to uh, make you feel disheartened, this is always something we're working on. I mean, every Sunday I'm striving to 
to not only just cover responsibilities that are just part of the many hats that I wear on Sunday morning, but, but also there's, I see someone that I haven't seen in like a month. I'm like, oh, I got to go talk to them. And then I see someone that's asking, asking me a question and I want to address their question. But then I see someone I've never met before and I want to go introduce. And so it's just like, this is like how do I, there's only so many things I can say. And so I get this is, this is a battle. It definitely feels like a 2,000-pound horse. <laughs> it definitely feels like a massive ship with strong winds. But we cannot make excuses. The standard is here. Praise God that he doesn't judge us by the fruit, but by our willingness to labor. And that's what we have to strive to do, is, is to labor for the Lord. And by the way, this, this word curse, um, again, our, our vernacular today is not quite the image here. But anytime you see language of cursing men, it's, it's essentially the same thing as asking God to show ill will towards that person. And again, you may be thinking, like, well, I, I, I don't do this, so whew, I can mark this off. But sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's that one person in your life, or you know, maybe it's a person at work, or maybe it's a family member, that you keep warning time and time again, don't do this, don't do this. And then, boom, it happens, and they face the sting of that. What's in your heart at that moment? Is it like, oh, justice? Because if you believe in the sovereignty of God, and bad things happen to people, good people, or good or bad people, people in your life, your reaction to those things reveals what's in your heart. And it's, it's obvious here. He's just saying, look, if you're going to be of God, why are you so concerned with the outwardness and not what's on the inside? Brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. It ought not to be so. He goes on in verse 11 and says, Does a fountain pour forth from it the same opening fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. We kind of get these last images here um, just again to to help us. it says, uh, you know, once, uh, sorry, uh, talking about a fountain, that does a fountain pour forth from it? Same opening, fresh and bitter water. Actually, I, I, I really enjoy looking at the, the, the flow of this text from verse 11, does a fountain pour forth, all the way down to the end of verse 12, because it's almost like a progression. If you notice, it, it starts off with the question of confusion, and then it goes on to two different options, and then it ends with, kind of the hypocrisy that's undeniable. He says, does a fountain pour forth from it the same opening fresh and bitter water? So it's almost that idea of you're experiencing someone that's, that's kind of living this life of, of duplicity and, and you're sitting there almost confused about, well, wait, is it fresh or bitter? I'm confused. And then moving on to verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives or a vine produce figs? And obviously the answer to both of these questions is No nor can a salt water produce fresh. When you sin with your words, it always reveals your hypocrisy. It's undeniable. In fact, we're all guilty of hypocrisy. This was not me speaking to people in this room that are hypocrites and everyone else is just nailing it. We're all practicing hypocrisy. And how much more so in the family? And again, you may think that it's like, you know, 
you know, I'm not, it's not like I'm co committing adultery. I'm not, you know, out there gambling at the, you know, Cherokee Indian Reserve on the weekends. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm a good dad. I'm a good husband. I provide for the family. And it's, it's like you've come up with every excuse under the sun. But the question is, in those moments of failing, where is the repentance? Where is the acknowledgement of, I'm, I'm being exactly what James told us not to be. I'm proclaiming to be fresh water, and yet bitterness is coming out of my mouth. I keep claiming to be a fig tree, and yet all I'm producing is olives. And you may be able to fool me or fool the people in this room, but let me tell you, the people you're not going to fool are your kids. Your kids are going to see it. In fact, one pastor said, it could have been Shane, I, I kind of lose track of all the good wisdom that I, I kind of gain over the years, but you, you want a, a child to fall away from the Lord quickly? Practice hypocrisy as a parent. Again, you, you may be sitting here and people praise you all the time, but, but just go ask the wife. Go ask the husband. Just wait and see what the kids say. And again, no one's perfect in this. We're all striving to, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We're all striving to do this each and every day. But is it with a spirit of humility? Is it, is it a spirit of gentleness? In fact, I, I want to end our time uh, really just looking uh, at, at what we're going to see in, in the next section. Uh, this, for the college students, this was the next section. Uh, for you guys, you just guys get a give me for one week. Uh, but look at verse 13. Because really what we're talking about here is the fact that in order to practice integrity, in order to be perceived as someone that is wise and holy, in order to be perceived as someone that is of God, it is very little with this thing that you're projecting out to other people. Look what it says in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding. Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. In the gentleness of wisdom. And so I, my prayer for myself, my prayer for uh, my wife, and, and even as of what I'm trying to teach my kids is just looking at what God has called us to live looking at the way the Lord has commanded us to live and, and not sitting there looking at it as a, an overwhelming task of, you know, this 2,000-pound this horse, how am I ever going to get control of this? You know, looking at this massive ship and these massive winds, you're just like, I'll never steer this ship the right way. But it's, it's about faithful steps one day at a time. And for many of us, the first step might just be asking for forgiveness. Just stating the obvious. I mean, there's sometimes where it's like the only way this is going to be dealt with is you just got to awkwardly go in there and state the obvious. I have been a duplicitous person. I have been living in different uh, facets of life with different masks because I thought there was something to gain in this world. Please forgive me for not being a man or a woman of integrity. That's what we have to say sometimes. And that's hard to do. But it's not about if it's too hard. It's about what is right. As we close, let us think about just the, the weight of our words. 
let us think about what do our words advertise about us? What do our words advertise about your God that you worship? Let's pray.